You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to The Edition Podcast, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within our pages each week, with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, the presidential candidates in America gave a rather undignified display. So is it a sneak peek of things to come in November? Also on the podcast, should we be defending wokeness? And at the very end, are male-only spaces like the Garrick Club immoral? First up, anyone who saw the presidential debate earlier this week would have known that American politics is not in a healthy state right now. Matt Purple, a senior editor at The American Conservative, writes our cover piece this week and paints the worst case scenario if, come November, both sides claim victory. Matt joins me now, together with Karen Robinson, host of the Primarily 2020 podcast. So Matt, you start your piece with a damning verdict on that debate from earlier this week, but you say that in one way it was useful. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, that wasn't a debate. It was like a thermonuclear accident. It was just horrible from start to finish and, you know, a disgrace for American democracy so far as we're concerned. But that level of contention, that level of partisanship has really been the case here in America for a long time. And uh, it's, we've been roiled by riots this year after George Floyd's death. We've had, you know, uh, white supremacists clashing with left-wing black masks in the streets. Portland, Oregon is still aflame. I mean, it's been a really challenging year here in the United States. And the way that it looks like we're going to finish it off is with an election that could very well be contested. Out of that debate is coming all kinds of lawsuits into as to what the, the results of the election are going to be. Both Republicans and Democrats are lawyering up. Both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have said that the results of the election uh, might not be legitimate and should be challenged. Donald Trump did so on the debate stage a couple nights ago. He's been saying that for a very long time, by the way. He said the entire thing could be a fraud. So, you know, an, an election anywhere, including here in the United States, relies on a certain deal of good faith. People have to be willing, they have to obligate themselves to go along with the results. And right now, from where I'm sitting, it doesn't look guaranteed that both sides are going to do that. And of course, Karen, one of the reasons this election could be so contentious is postal votes or mail ballots, as they're known in America, and the amount of doubt that's being cast on them as a, as a legitimate way of voting in this election. Can you explain why the worry is there and how much Donald Trump is responsible for stoking those fears? Uh, well, so, so that's, that's a really important point. So traditionally, mail balloting in the United States, and, and I, like, most, like every expat voter in the world, um, have been voting, uh, voting by postal ballot for, for, for years now, and that's always how we vote. There are a number of states in the United States that already have entirely mail voting. So it's, it's not that voting by mail or absentee voting is in any way a new phenomenon in American elections. It's something that's pretty common. It's available everywhere and so forth. And historically, it has been a fairly bipartisan opportunity. Um, There has been no statistical difference in past elections between whether Republicans or Democrats cast more votes by mail. Both parties have taken advantage of it. um, And, you know, people have been elected to office um, by postal votes um, from both parties. This year is looking very different than that. This year, if the data is 
is correct, it looks like an overwhelming uh, majority or at least a very high proportion of Democratic voters are planning on voting by mail for reasons of COVID security. And also, I think, just general feelers about, about election day and eagerness to get their votes in. And then on the other side, Donald Trump has been pretty, I mean, very explicit about suggesting that there's something fraudulent about mail ballots, suggesting that they won't be valid, that they'll be fraudulent, that they won't be, might not be counted, that they sh they shouldn't count. He's really been stoking a lot of conspiracy-minded, um, dangerous theories about um, mail voting, none of which has proved valid, is, is factually founded. The problem is that the, that creates a big disjunction between lots of Democrats will be voting early, but their votes will be counted later. Lots of Republicans will be voting on election day. Their votes might be counted sooner, but of course every vote is equally valid. So the concern that has been expressed in a lot of quarters has been um, that the votes on election day will not look like the actual outcome of the election. Donald Trump might claim victory on election night, even though most votes have not been counted. It's just one of many nightmare scenarios. I mean, I could, I could go on. There are dozens of things to worry about. Um, that's perfectly correct that there's a, there's a lot of weaknesses that have been exposed in our democratic system to this year. The concern is not so much that they won't eventually be able to get mail-in balloting right. You know, we had a what might be viewed as a dress rehearsal for this mm -hmm. in New York, as well as in other states, where they had this deluge of balloting, of, of mail-in ballots, because there was voting in primary elections during the pandemic. And it took them, in that case, weeks to declare the winner. There really were issues with the ballots themselves. Some of them were dismissed. They shouldn't have been. And, you know, there wasn't necessarily any evidence of overwhelming fraud. That isn't so much the point. It's more just making sure that the government has the infrastructure to deal with this. And so the problem, I think, is less that the wrong winner is going to be declared. It's more that you could have a period of time in between the election itself and in between the actual winner being declared when we don't know who it is. We don't know who the president is going to be. It could stretch on for weeks. It could stretch on for months. And into that void are going to come lawsuits. In fact, they already have. I think more than 300 lawsuits have already been filed over this election. An astonishing number in America. We'd like to sue people. But still, that, that's pretty astonishing even for us. And there's all kinds of worries going out over cable news, over media. Trump mentioned a report during the debate that ballots had been found in a creek. Uh, that's actually true. They were found with a bunch of other mail, too. It wasn't just the mail-in ballots, but, but there, there were a bunch of ballots found in a ditch in, I believe, North Dakota. And, uh, and, and, you know, all of this is feeding into a climate that's ultimately going to be carried out in the courts. And one more thing to keep in mind, we only have eight justices in our Supreme Court right now because there's a vacancy. Ruth Bader Ginsburg just died. And if that continues, if Trump isn't able to confirm his nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, if these cases make it up to the Supreme Court, you could end up with a split result, in which case there wouldn't really be any national judicial finalization on the election itself. And it, it could result in chaos. It really could. On the Supreme Court point, I think it, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Because on the one hand, you know, there is, of course, the possibility of a split court verdict. On the other hand, Trump has not been helping his case very much by going around and saying that, you know, with very incautious words and saying that he needs the the justice to be to be appointed so that they can resolve it for him. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of anxiety on the part of, you know, both sides of the aisle. Voters want to know 
know that the process is being conducted fairly and in a nonpartisan way. And, you know, those kind, that kind of language really ramps up people's anxieties about this election. So I think, I hope that the problem will be that it turns out that our fears were unfounded, but the fears are real and people are really fearing them, which is creating a, a, a climate of um, mutual distrust between American citizens, which is, which is extremely unhealthy for democracy and, and quite rightly concerning. Karen, on that Supreme Court point as well, I mean, you're a Democrat, but for the sake of stability, do you think that Trump should be able to rush his nominee through before the election? A flippant question, perhaps. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I um, how shall I put this politely? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that uh, the, the Republicans have stolen a Supreme Court justice from, from Democrats. I think their behavior has been reprehensible in the management of the court in recent years. So, no, I'm in no hurry to see, uh, to see Trump's chosen justice appointed. Um, I think that, you know, uh, just basically, I think that the entire balance of American politics is out of whack when you've got three judges appointed. I mean, so... So Trump will have appointed three justices should um, should Amy Coney Barrett be um, be be approved. He did not win a popular vote majority. We've got you know six of the six of the nine justices would be would have been appointed by that point by presidents who did not initially win a popular vote majority. I think we have deep structural problems in mm-hmm. representational democracy that I think are going to blow back on us in the long run. You know, if all three branches of government wind up being controlled by people by people who both by the party that earned fewer votes, that is does not feel like what people expect of a representational democracy. And that is currently the case in the Senate, the House and the presidency. Um, and of course, also in the Supreme Court, which would be worsened by this. So, you know, I have some concerns. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Matt, in your piece, you say that in the worst case scenario, and if the Supreme Court doesn't pull through, the only hope that is, is that it, the only hope there is some kind of grand compromise between the two parties. Is that really a realistic hope? No, absolutely not. Um, And, you know, just to respond to what was just said, too, it's worth keeping in mind as well that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who just died, uh, was herself appointed by a president who didn't win the popular vote, Bill Clinton. Uh, The way that our system works over here is very Byzantine and strange to to people. I mean, he won won a plurality vote. He did win a plurality vote. That's true. That's true. I'm just saying if that's the standard, then you have to write off a lot of a lot of Supreme Court justices. No, I think I mean, I think it may be that, you know, we need to relook at the whole system. It is totally true by the way, that Republicans uh, did steal a Supreme Court seat. They're totally being hypocritical with the standard. I do think, though, that in order to resolve what could be any election concerns in the way that we had to in 2000, in the way that the election between George W. Bush and Al Gore went all the way up to the Supreme Court, you do need to have nine justices on the court. And, you know, to your point, I, I think we, we have had grand compromises before uh, that has happened. I think the last one was back in the 1880s when, uh, you know, it, it was a um, Rutherford v. Hayes was elected uh, and, and there was whole, all kinds of confusion between Northern Republicans and Southern Democrats and they ultimately had to work out a deal between the two parties and nobody was satisfied with it. And everybody spent four years claiming the other side had gotten too much and it was illegitimate mm-hmm. and the election had been stolen. Uh, really, you can look at Democrats the same way after 2000 when uh, George W. Bush lost the popular vote, but nonetheless uh, went into the presidency. There were a lot of Democrats who refused to really accept him. And you know, bear in mind that was back in like 1999, 2000. We were a lot stabler back then. Uh, there wasn't this extreme sense of partisanship. And I think that that makes it 
a lot less likely that we'll be able to come together and work something out. And it makes me more pessimistic. So I think, I think you talk about a grand bargain in very big terms. I, I would argue that what we need is something both more fundamental, but also in some ways much simpler, right? We need to agree on some basic principles for what is, what is a functioning democracy. Um, Republicans and Democrats, as you alluded to, are, there are some 300 lawsuits currently in place, but most of those lawsuits right now are Republicans arguing for less voting or to make voting more difficult and Democrats arguing for making voting more simple and straightforward. Well, I think, you know, that doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like an area where we're ever going to have the opportunity for a grand bargain because these two parties just have fundamentally different ideas about what democracy is um, and what the expansion of the franchise should look like. I think, you know, we can talk about at a state level, there are kind of lots and lots of things. Remember that the United States government, the US federal government doesn't have that much of a role to play in managing elections. Actually, for the most part, most election procedures are set by the states, although the federal government can provide protocols and procedures and kind of overall standards. So the reason you've got so many lawsuits happening as well is because every state has a different standard. And we don't seem to have a, a kind of agreed set of principles for what a good election looks like. And so I would probably start there. I would start rather than, you know, one sort of big compromise. I would start with a conversation across the aisle about can we come to an agreement on some basic principles? Because, you know, the fact that every single argument about the franchise winds up being a knockdown, drag out partisan fight doesn't feel healthy. And it feels like both a symptom and a cause of this ongoing problem. Mm. Matt, what's the optimist's case for what might happen? The optimist case is that one side or the other wins in a landslide and there's just no room to question. Uh, what the results are, that it's so overwhelming a victory, uh, both in the popular vote and especially in the Electoral College, that you really can't question the results. That is possible. Uh, it is probably even more possible after that last debate. I think that some people who are on the fence, even some, some uh, weak Trump voters are now going to be going over to Joe Biden's side. There was a poll, we might say it's too good to check, up in deeply conservative Alaska that found Trump only ahead by one point. Uh, if that's the case, then who knows where this thing could go? It really could be a Biden landslide. But I would offer some caution there too. You guys will remember back in 2016, Hillary Clinton was surmising that she could win uh, Georgia in the South or Arizona, a deeply conservative state, not as conservative as it used to be, but still a, a red state. Uh, she didn't end up doing any of that. She ended up losing Florida. She lost North Carolina. And we all know what ended up happening there. So, you know, I, I don't think the Democrats should get complacent and get ahead of themselves. And that is what makes me nervous is that, you know, right now, a very small percentage of the American electorate is undecided. Most people have made their choice. And it's really competing for this tiny little group in the middle that might be ping ponging back and forth, uh, such as the nature of our polarization right now. And that points towards a, a fairly close election. I think, a pretty close election. And uh, in that case, I think we do have to start entertaining worst case scenarios. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Matt and Karen, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. And now it's not a piece that you might commonly associate with The Spectator, but our Arts and Books editor Sam Leith writes in this week's magazine a defence of wokeness. Sam joins me now together with Andrew Doyle, the comedian and writer behind the social media character Titania McGrath. So Sam, make your case for us. Well, 
I, I'm defending, I suppose, the wokeness in its original sense because, and complaining, if you like, about the way in which the word woke has now become a kind of catch-all term among right-wing people, or particularly the sort of lazier sort of right-wing newspapers, for anything on the left at all. So sudden, you know, it, it has its origins in black activism in the States, where to be woke, you know, as a kind of successor to being conscious, was essentially just to be aware, i.e. to say, look, there are these issues, we're aware of them, we think we need to tackle them. And, you know, it's kind of getting your getting your head in the game, essentially. And it's become a sort of lazy, sort of slightly sneering shorthand, I think, for everything on the left, much in the way that 20 years ago, everything would be political correctness gone mad. And, you know, sort of people like Richard Littlejohn would get column after column after column with it. And so what I'm sort of saying is that the fundamental idea of being woke, of thinking my worldview might not be the only one, there may be a way of thinking about, you know, be it levels of privilege or advantage that we have that we're not aware of. I mean, this is a sort of fundamental understanding of the left. And indeed, it's one that I think people on the right can go along with. I mean, you know, when you're arguing about the cancellation of historical figures, one of the strongest arguments against that is, look, their views were of their time. And to say that somebody's views are of their time is exactly to say you know, you may not be aware of your own biases and prejudices. I think Sam is right that there are some people who will use it as a lazy sneer without necessarily understanding the origins of the word, and that is definitely the case. And as ever with the culture war, the problem that we find is that people are using the same words uh, to mean different things, and that is that is happening across the board. So I think with woke, it's particularly complicated. Where I part company from Sam is the definition that he provides in his piece is about 10 years out of date. And I wish he were right. I wish that all that woke meant is what it used to mean, which is, you know, during the various black civil rights movements of the 20th century, the, the, the phrase woke simply meant to be alert to social injustice, especially racism. And if that were still the case, then I would call myself woke. I mean, virtually 99% of us would, wouldn't we, you know. But what happened was it got kind of, I mean, it was popularised around 2008 by Erica Badu, who, who released a song called Master Teacher, in which the phrase stay woke was used. And then gradually it became more commonly a- applied to a certain type of social justice ideology. We're talking around 2012, it got hijacked. So that that original meaning of being alert to injustice, especially racism, no longer applied. What it now signified was a particularly kind of illiberal, intolerant, soft authoritarianism that was obsessed with identity politics. And that's the way that woke people describe themselves for a number of years. And then you have this other shift in meaning, which happens about a year ago, when, because, well, people like me are mocking the phrase uh, and mocking the people behind the phrase, suddenly it becomes uh, considered a slur or a sneer. And then you get this interesting development where people on the left are saying, well, we never described ourselves as woke. It's just a right-wing fantasy. It's just a right-wing smear. Whereas, of course, I can provide numerous examples of where they indeed do describe themselves as woke and are trying to do this bizarre revisionism where they pretend they never did. So the reason I use the word woke when I'm describing these people is because for so long it has been the word that they've used to describe themselves. And it is not the case that they are simply alert to injustice because that would describe all of us. It is, in fact, the case that they want to... um... An interesting point you make there, actually, about the shifting meanings, Andrew, because in response to the piece I wrote, I've had some kind of quite interesting response from people on the left saying, yes, I see your point, but wokesters still annoy me. And I think that that linguistic slippage has actually crossed, straddled a particular divide 
not between left and right, but within the left, between a kind of old style, you know, trad Marxism, feminist, class based account of the world. And this much more, you know, as it were, postmodern one, which is identitarian and individualistic and, you know, kind of essentially leaves the reality based community a little bit behind. Well, the, I, I think what you're saying is right. And I think the people who would now, who would, well, I, let's put it this way. And I, I really don't want to sound offensive here, but I feel as though by sort of buying into the definition that the, the more illiberal postmodern kind of uh, movement would like us to hold, you're almost falling for their trick. Because, because of course, what woke means to them is, is, is a, a, a whole other range of different things that isn't just about being nice to people and being open to seeing the world differently, which is the way that, you interpret it but that's the way that they want you to interpret it they want to play on this ambiguity that you've identified and actually it means something very different Sam I think one example for this is a book that you mentioned in your piece why I'm no longer talking to white people about race now I have had white friends say to me that makes them feel uncomfortable because they're white so what are they are they not meant to know about racism are they are they meant to be racist themselves so isn't it the case that a lot of people who are quote marks work for lack of a better word have that sort of exclusivity about them and there's almost a, a reverse kind of segregation of certain groups as not being woke enough by virtue of their identity i mean actually that book's quite a good example because it was given a you know a sort of deliberately provocative and sort of rebarbative title and you know one, as i said in the piece one of the funny things was that i was turned on to that book obviously i'd read about it but it was my dad who was born in South Africa, he's in his 70s, he's, you know, he's a sort of elderly white man. And he said, said, you've got to read this book, it completely changed the way I see things. And of course, as Renny Edo Lodge says in the book, you know, or in an introduction or postscript to the book, she says, you know, obviously since writing a blog post and now a book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, I do nothing but talk to white people about race. I mean, that book wasn't intended, as I understood it, as a sort of exclusionary book it was an argument essentially based on her frustrations where she'd say to white you know white friends look there is this thing called structural racism and it disadvantages people of color in the community and da, 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 da. and they would react as if it was a personal attack on them saying you are racist and so it's an attempt to say quite lucidly and patiently look this is what we mean by structural racism. It sounds like an academic term, you know, and intersectionality sounds like a sort of academic weird term. But look, this is what it describes in quite plain and lucid language. Now, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons you might diverge with her analysis, but that isn't an example of a very exclusionary thing. I think the problem is we get quite a lot of people on the left, and they're the people that Andrew takes issue with, and they're people that I can share his taking issue with, who sort of half get it, if you see what I mean, and who become extremely illiberal and will argue that because, you know, these notions of false consciousness and these notions that, you know, you might be a beneficiary of a system without knowingly colluding in it or recognising it, that therefore, for instance, you know, to be white is to be a white supremacist automatically or to be male is to be a rapist or whatever the you know, reductio ad absurdum those positions is. And I think we do get into a, a situation which, which that line of politics pushes us towards, where the only people who are entitled to speak with authority on a subject 
or take a view on a subject are those who, if you like, have a particular identity that bears on it. And I think that's dangerous because it destroys the idea of a, a common wheel, if you like. I mean, the general understanding of society is that, you know, we should be able to make laws and recognise oppressions and make arguments that are available to everybody, even if they aren't directly affected. And that argument says, only I have the authority to speak on this and you need to shut up. Or more to the point, you know, you need to educate yourself, but it's not my job to educate you by doing the emotional labour is a dead end. Andrew, speaking of people who sort of half understand the argument, don't you think sometimes that the right, again, for lack of a better term, um, pick the low-hanging fruit in that if you take the proms debacle, for example, no one on the woke left was really calling for people to not sing the words to these songs or not play these songs. It was the BBC, the institution itself, who wanted to co-op themselves onto the cause. So don't you think that sometimes, you know, we're, we're attacking straw men? I think that's inevitably going to happen when uh, an ideology takes root in a culture. And that that's exactly what has happened. That's absolutely true. I mean, I, I wrote a piece this week which uh, sort of got to the heart of what you're asking, which is that I perceive the, the culture war as there's sort of almost, almost two narratives of the culture war. And one of them is this, the tabloid narrative, which you'd say snowflakes versus anti-snowflakes. And it's a terrible word, which I never use. And then you've got the substantial uh, interpretation of the culture war, which is actually those who value liberty, individual freedom, versus those who prefer a kind of soft authoritarianism. And that's really what's going on. That's what the culture war actually is. And and actually, the um, the, uh, the René Edo Lodge book, is a good example because although it's very well intentioned and there's lots of good things about it it does fundamentally buy into some of the premises of critical race theory which is a a, a narrative that doesn't uh, provide evidence for its own truth and actually the thing that's really taken hold in society is these kind of ideas the kind of ideas that are encapsulated by books such as white fragility by robin d'angelo or uh, how to be an anti-racist by ibram x kendi and these are the, the very ideas that sam's actually just been talking about and exposing is that that people saying we are uniquely qualified qualified to identify the injustices in society and what they call systemic racism or structural racism, this sort of very nebulous thing that you never have to pin down, you never have to prove, even when the statistics and data show, for instance, that an institution isn't in fact racist, we can still claim that it is because of our lived experience. It's a, it's about, it's that postmodern ideal of this idea of objective truth not being able to be grasped and actually what really matters is new ways of knowing and lived experience which is what we used to call anecdotal evidence and we just used to ignore it didn't we Sam this is one surprising thing I found about your piece that you compare woke movement to the principles of the enlightenment that uh, you know you, you say that to question received ideas and see if your assumptions are susceptible to disprove is something that can apply to the enlightenment and the woke movement but isn't it as Andrew has said that lived experience is much more important now well I suppose in that sense the definition of woke that I was championing was the one that Andrew says is out of date and <laughs> that's why my piece did have a sort of coda saying of course by this reasonable definition of it there is a portion of the woke left who are very unwoke and you know are closed-minded rather than open-minded I mean I think the slippage that we're describing is one between being able to wonder whether you what seems natural to you what seems common sense what seems a sort of the worldview you automatically adopt questioning that is obviously very valuable but moving on to say my worldview is self-evidently correct and everybody else is in a pit of self-delusion and unable to see their privilege or whatever it is, which is a sort of strangely individualistic twist on what, at least in the Enlightenment, is a very communal and self-questioning effort. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I feel that what you're describing, what you're advocating is actually an anti-woke position. Uh, I think it's just that you define woke differently than I do. And in fact, differently than the woke themselves do. <laughs> yes. I, I, the, one, of the, one of the other issues I do take, you know, take issue with, and, and again, it's probably in the lazier use of it, is that, I mean, you know, we are where we are in terms of how it's, it's defined. And you say, well, these people wouldn't call themselves woke anymore. But, you know, I worry that very often in using that as the sort of label for the enemy you kind of gather up an awful lot of, of baby with bathwater. There should be a sort of perhaps a more precise way. Of... I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely, I think there is a real problem with how do we describe this ideology? And, and the problem is that the, the words that the devotees of this ideology use to describe themselves don't mean what they say they mean. So they will call themselves liberals when they're in fact illiberal. They'll talk about social justice when everything they work towards works against social justice. And I, I'm with you. I, I, you know, I, I don't use the word woke anywhere near as often as I used to because it's because I don't want people to think I'm, I'm sneering. And I know I'm largely responsible for the way that the term <laughs> has now become a, a sneer. But I, I recognise that words change meaning. And, and you know, we, we have to find a better way to describe what this is. And what it is, is an anti-enlightenment idea an idea that's, that claims that knowledge does not really matter and truth does not really matter. And, and worse than that, it's, it's, it's worse than, than postmodernism. I mean, the early postmodernists were never saying that they should apply their theories to society and to policy. That's something that is new. That, that's come about by activists masquerading as academics who are now li- literally pushing this stuff through. And it's everywhere. It's in the arts, it's in the media, it's in education. It is having a tangible effect on society. And we need to therefore be able to push back against it. But the problem is because of these two definitions of what's going on, that what I say, the tabloid and the substantial definition of what the culture war is, it means that authentic and legitimate criticisms of this this creeping authoritarianism are written off as being the PC gone mad brigade all over again. Uh, whereas actually these are very important points that we should be making. And, and it's not the case that, that people like me are saying, oh, it's PC gone mad. We're not, we're not saying that. I was actually quite a supporter of political correctness. The point that we're making is we have to find a language to combat this illiberal trend. What that is, I don't know. But I'm with you on on the point that uh, woke probably won't cut it anymore because it will simply be interpreted as a sneer. We should probably have started this discussion by defining what we're talking about, but it's too late now. We've run out of time. <laughs> it is, but, but we've had the peculiar thing that, you know, like we've ended up, unfortunately, in almost entire agreement. I'm sure, sure that me agreeing with Titania McGrath it's so on the subject of wokeness happens, wasn't the plan. It? We'll fire yeah. the podcast producer. <laughs> <laughs> You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. And last, how outdated are places like the Garrett Club? The club established in the 1800s still doesn't allow women and a lawsuit is being brought against it. Laura Freeman defends members' rights to be in a male-only space in this week's magazine. And now I'm joined by Emily Bendell, the woman who is bringing the lawsuit against the club. So, Emily, can you tell us why you started this lawsuit? I came across this issue by chance, really, at the end of last year. I was looking around at members' clubs, came across the Garrick. I mean, it's not the only one, there are others. And I just couldn't believe that these kind of men-only clubs still existed. And then when I started looking at the membership and how influential some of the members were and in professions where women are underrepresented quite significantly... I just, yeah, I was just really shocked and I was moaning about it down the pub with my friends for long enough that I thought, you know what, I'm going to see if there's anything that can be done about this. And um, and that's how we got to where we are today. <laughs> but 
a lawsuit is quite high resource and it must be taking up so much of your time, you being an entrepreneur anyway. This is quite a drastic step for you to be taking. So yeah, look, you know, I have a successful business, but one that is not huge. It's an independent brand. I still very much run it. I have two very small children. (laughs) Yes. And this is very time consuming. And I'll be honest, you know, in many ways, it's been quite unpleasant because you open yourself up to some not very nice people. Mm. Do you think that this fight is ultimately one that's going to be inaccessible to a lot of people maybe listening to this podcast. I mean, I don't know how much membership to the Garrick Club costs, but it can't be an option for a lot of women or indeed men. So is it just, you know, a bubble issue, as it were? Well, no, you see, that, that that's kind of perhaps some of the misunderstanding and, and perhaps sort of misleading reporting on this that there has been to date. So part of the reason I think this is an issue is not just about individual women and their membership. I think it's a, it's a broader issue because some of the members of these clubs are people who are in professions and hold power of influence that affects all our lives. So, so for example, back in 2015, the Lawyer magazine estimated that 25% of the senior judiciary are members of the Garrick and only, only 13% of our Supreme Court judges are female, right? So these are professions that it's really important for all of us because they're making decisions that affect us all, you know, politicians, lawyers. They're making decisions that affect us all and it's really important for all of us that we have diversity in those professions. And the Garrick is one part of obviously many, many problems that are stopping women progressing in those industries. But I guess the question I'm trying to get at is whether or not this is an issue for people who don't have money as well as an issue, a gendered issue, right? Why don't we say that these privileged spaces should also be accessible to those who are not in the elite of society anyway? Surely they should be having access to this, these leading people in law, in the arts, in politics as well. Why is it that women and wealthy women who are the victims here? So look, I think I'm not suggesting for a minute there are not broader issues with these kind of members clubs, okay? So I'm, I'm sure they are littered with them. And there is no doubt these members clubs have, you know, very few people of colour, probably very few people of disability. You know, there are lots of issues here. But the rule book does not say no people of this ethnic origin, no people, but it does say no women. What about class? Because even though it's not in the rule book, presumably you have to pay a membership fee and that essentially says, you know, if you're poor, don't join. So I think there's a lot of issues around, you know, how do we get um, better representation, you know, in in a lot of different professions of, of those from a background that, you know, has been less fortunate. So I think that absolutely is an issue. So, you know, I think to say, oh, you know, there's there's lots of issues, therefore let's not, you know, approach any of them is a little bit short-sighted this is one issue amongst many and I think you know just going back to the, you know I've mentioned it already but going back to the law because I think this is one where it, it's so obvious to me and I realize this is contentious so I, I want to really explain <laughs> very clearly why why this is obvious to me you know this is a profession where quantitatively everyone can look at the numbers women are underrepresented right really appalling numbers 15% of QCs are women only 27% of partners at large law firms are women and I can go on and on so there is very few women in the top ranks and this is a profession that's really important that we have diversity in what are the women at the very top of this profession saying well they are saying that clubs like the Garrick are a problem you know Baroness Hale nearly 10 years ago said she was shocked by the membership of the Garrick by her counterparts and that the culture at the club was a key factor in why women did not reach the top judicial ranks. And there are too many systemic barriers depending on personal connections. Loads of QCs have spoken out. 
The Magistrates Association essentially blackballed three honorary fellows for their membership of the Garrick. So why are we not listening? How are we in a situation where we've got an industry where diversity is really important, women are underrepresented, senior women telling us there's a problem and this policy still exists? So you're saying that she thinks there's a lot of talking shop in the club that even though it's been dubbed as a private space, it is having real life ramifications on careers. It's invisible connections, it's professional connections. I think we would all agree, you know, the people we socialise with, that we're members of something with, we help them, we give them a leg up. It's natural human nature to do that. So even if they're not sort of sitting down and looking at business documents on the premises, there are still that kind of invisible connection that lifts up those that are part of the club and women are denied access from that. I think there's another issue on top of that which concerns me, which is perhaps a bit more subtle, which is, are we comfortable having very influential men socialising in a space where women are cast as diminutive? You know, the second most senior politician in the in the country is hanging out and socialising in a space where women can't pay for drinks, they can't see prices on menus, they can't enter certain rooms... I am uncomfortable with that. That makes that concerns me and I think it should concern all of us because it feeds into this kind of subtle systemic view of women. So so it's twofold for me um, the, the the problem. I mean, I think you're mentioning Michael Gove there, but in his defence, he did vote for bringing women into the club back when this was brought to a vote um, a few years ago. No, I was going to say he did. And a lot of the men, the majority, in fact, of men there did. But they remain members five years later and change has still not been affected. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, because we sort of, you know, that's great that they they voted that way five years ago. But, you know, they are still members and what's happened since. Yeah, and they need a two thirds majority in order to enact that change. That brings me on to my next question which is that obviously this change has been attempted before and that was done in a sort of way within the club do you think that the law is the best mechanism to bring change some would say that it's okay to disagree with things in society and you can campaign against them but to make it illegal would be something one step more in that in that option the legal route is that the garrick is a service provider and it is illegal to deny services you know bars restaurants based on gender it is not an illegal to have an association based on gender so that the legal point hinges on that that definition of the club as an association or as a service provider i completely agree with you that really this is a moral issue right so we as a society for example are very comfortable with you know a men's nursing association for example but not a women's nursing association we are comfortable with a women's uh, association of barristers but not a men's association of barristers because we can all naturally see that if um, a gender is underrepresented. There is a need for an association to form to to help readdress that balance. So I completely agree. This is a moral issue, and I would have hoped that because it's a moral issue, the Garrick and the membership by now would have righted that and voted to admit called a vote and voted to admit women. But because that hasn't happened, it's necessary to try and affect that change through other means, and that's where we are now. Mm. Some of your critics have accused you of doing this as a publicity stunt for your lingerie brand. What do you say to them? <laughs> the first thing is, I really don't see how this is going to help me sell knickers, number one. The second thing is, you know... Th- well, I guess the Blue Bella name out there because of podcasts like these. That may be so, you know, but I don't think <laughs> this is sort of a natural step to going t- to buy knickers. And also, you know, to be quite honest with you, it's really been quite an unpleasant process. You know, you open yourself up to some really not very nice people writing into you and so on. This is not necessarily 
been an enjoyable experience that is the best way to get publicity for you know a, a, a lingerie brand so you know I understand why people say that but you know this is something I believe I stumbled across I believe it matters and so I'm trying to do something about it and finally if you do succeed and you are able to be a member of the Garrett Club do you really want to hang out there Laura Freeman in her piece talks about seeing a mouse running across the floor <laughs> yeah. and we've all heard that the average age is 70 no offense to elderly listeners of this podcast but is it really the right place for you to be hanging out anyway I think I'm alive in the place up you know I think I'm not scared of mice so that's good so um that, that's a positive and uh you know, as you said earlier, the majority of members would welcome women. So um, my hope would be that uh, get some fresh ideas in there. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much. And that's it for this week. Pick up the issue to read all of the pieces discussed on the episode, as well as a diary from Petronella Wyatt, Baz Javid's notebook, yes, he's Sajid Javid's brother, and Douglas Murray on why Charles Moore will be a good appointment for the BBC. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.